Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whew, my mouth is salivating as I'm thinking about this. <laughs> So I have this beautiful pink um, shallow bowl of green dandelions and they've been cooked um, just in a little bit of salted water and I prepared them with lemon juice, olive oil, and just a sprinkle of salt. This is my friend, Angela Trakis. She's also my roommate. We live together in the far western outpost of San Francisco, in a chilly neighborhood full of surfers that borders the Pacific Ocean and Golden Gate Park, where sometimes the sound of foghorns wakes you up in the morning, where sometimes if you go out at night at high tide, you can smell the salt and seaweed. Since we lived together, I got to sit in our little breakfast nook next to the kitchen that's all painted robin's egg blue and watch Angela prepare the snack for this episode. She was barefoot, like always, and I had my slippers on, like always, and we were laughing, also like always, because she and I are both into big joy. She walked me through the art of preparing the dandelion. Because I'm a Greek girl, I had to add a million things so we could really enjoy, <laughs> you know, eating the dandelions. You know, yes. a Greek table is never going to have just one thing. It's just not allowed. So I have some Kalamata olives that um, I sprinkled some Greek oregano on. And then we have this gorgeous olive loaf that definitely feels freshly baked. Um, it's soft, it's chewy, there's a nice crust to it. And that is going to be the vehicle for sopping up our beautiful um, dandelion broth with olive oil and lemon juice. Mm. I'm just going to mirror everything that you do. So what are we doing first? Okay. We're going to just swirl around our greens. So, you know, all of these beautiful liquids 
are coming together. And because of these red um, stalks, like the broth is is Ugh. this gorgeous like fuchsia. And I mean, I didn't plan this. I mean, I, I really didn't. But we have these pink bowls and the fuchsia liquid and these greens. I mean, it's really kind of impressive that a humble weed can become something so beautiful. <laughs> yes. Okay. Are we putting it in our mouth now? Take a bite. I'm okay. doing it too. Okay. Mm. Oh my God. Wow. Mm. I mean, mm. Ooh. 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 I just got a little bit of that salt. Ooh. Mm. Mm, yeah. Mm. Okay. So the first overwhelming taste is the bitterness of the grains. I mean, mm-hmm. what I'm getting is, I mean, it's kind of like the, it's like the greens equivalent of gaminess. Do you know what I'm talking about? <sighs> I do. I do. And I think that's why, you know, as someone who is a child of Greek immigrants, both sides of my family are farming families. And, you know, being close to the earth is something that is just part of who we were. You know, it's not who we are now, but it's still like, I think eating something that's wild, like connects us to that. Mm, yes. I'm just in love. The humble weed. The humble weed. <laughs> Angela and I have traveled the world together in search of delicious food. From the knockoff markets of LA with the most insane hot dogs. Anything you could possibly want on a bacon dog. I mean, it was available. To the buffets of Shipshawana, Indiana. Ended up at the Amish Easter feast. We waited three hours in line to have this Easter buffet. Oh. To the villages of Greece. There's this really great bakery in Athens who, you know, makes one of the best Sudeikis and they've introduced the chocolate covered Sudeiki. And, you know, sometimes I'm a purist. I don't think we need the chocolate. But in this case, we uh, loved the chocolate Sudeiki. <laughs> Part of what makes something a comfort food is who you eat it with. Food is a love language for me and Angela. A couple of years ago, we decided we wanted to go on a road trip together, and we made it all about a truly iconic American dessert item, pie. We dubbed the trip, I Only Have Pies for You. We ate pie all the way from Philly to Chicago, through over 800 miles of U.S. highways in the rain and shine. We ate apple pie, cherry pie, chocolate cream pie, key lime pie, and something called shoe fly pie, a molasses pie, which is sort of like pecan pie without the nuts. And we stopped along the way to enjoy lakes, forests, hot tubs, and of course, the Church of Chocolate, Hershey World. We have so much appreciation for food, in part because we each have a mom with hunger in her past. Angela's mom lived through German occupation during the Second World War. My mom had a full-blown eating disorder. I can't prove it, but I 100% believe that the memory of hunger gets passed on somehow, and that when we eat unapologetically, we feed our spirits which helps heal our families and our bloodlines. While we were eating greens in our kitchen, Angela told me why dandelions are so special for her family. 
I would probably, if I think back to, you know, my, my childhood days where I just wanted to be like every other kid, um, in my school, um, I probably balked at something like dandelions, you know, it was definitely like, oh, Horta again, Horta is the Greek word, um, it was not the thing, you know, we wanted to eat pizza. We wanted to eat hamburgers. We wanted to eat little Debbie's, right? Like everyone else. <laughs> little Debbie's. Yes. But as I grew older, I really started to appreciate the dandelions. As I grew older, I paid attention to how important they were to my mother. Um, I mean, it's, it's the thing that she always goes to. I mean, it's her comfort food. And my mother, my aunts, um, you know, our extended family in the Chicagoland area, when we couldn't find dandelions, um, we would go hunting for them. Mm. And, you know, you had to leave, you had to leave, you know, the, the city or the suburbs a little bit because because they do grow wild, right? And so, you know, you want to avoid the dog pee um, and pesticides and other things like that. So I could probably put money on this, but every Greek household probably has a paring knife or some kind of sharp tool in the trunk of their car. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the mother, my mother, every mother, every Greek mother has like dandelion radar and they, we could be on the highway and like, like, you know, pull over because I see a patch of dandelions and those dandelions look like no one's been around them. No stray dogs are near them. You know, it looks like a good bet for a nice little dandelion harvest. Yes. I'm curious about when it comes to food, what was it like growing up in a Greek household? Um, there's just so much that happens around the Greek table. And one of the things that I love most about it, even from a young age, is that my parents always encouraged my sister and I to, you know, be an active participant in the conversation. And that meant that we could say and think whatever we wanted to. And, you know, like, they they encourage that like philosophical kind of questioning you know wh- what does this mean and why and all of that and you know that often leads to debate and that often leads to you know intense conversations um but there's also this like beautiful connection to a country that seems very far away and and often that's like a very bittersweet kind of thing to to witness as a child um whose parents who's but whose parents really like you know I could see that one foot was in one country and one foot was in the other and neither of them was stable you know right right I think back to the dandelion and why it's so important and I think about you know, the circumstances that my parents grew up in. Um, my dad was born in 1939 and my mom was born in 1945. This was the height of Axis occupation in Greece. Um, my father's family home was occupied by soldiers. Um, there was scarcity. I mean, there was there were so many people that died because there wasn't enough food. And also, you know, after the occupation ended and World War II ended, there was um, a civil war in Greece because of kind of the factions that built up as a result of, of the occupation. And so, you know, this is this is the most traumatic <laughs> experience that, that, you know, my parents 
were born into, but then, you know, that I inherited. Right. Yes. And I think, I think of the, the scarcity, um, that comes with that and the, the pain and the suffering. Um, and I think of, you know, why something like dandelions, why something like a weed is so important, you know, because when you have nothing and you can offer someone food, you know, that is love, right? Um, and, you know, they were so proud of where they came from. Um, I think the, the reason that dandelions are so special is, or just like food, you know, Greek food is something that is so... Um, meaningful for me is because it was really like, it's not a stretch to say the, the only or best way that my mother could show her love, you know? Ooh, like I can feel that. I mean, I grew up with, you, as you know, um, sort of uh, like a lot of love, but not a lot of mm, safety. Um, but one of the ways that my grandmother who raised me as someone who was deeply traumatized by her own childhood and the loss of her mother, food and cooking and the kitchen were um, a place that she clearly felt power and she could consistently show up in that space, even when she couldn't consistently show up emotionally for us or for me otherwise. And, and I think I also relate to, and I don't know if this is something that you feel connected to, but this sort of way in which food becomes how our parents teach us about, it's like the education in, in our own identity, that, that non-American identity um, that gets translated through food in a sort of obviously like non-linguistic way. And, but there's so much in it, right? Like, I mean, I just think like, I'm thinking literally of you know, you didn't grow up in Greece, but when I think of how you cook, um, I always am reminded of the, the Mediterranean sun and the landscape. And I mean, having been to the village where your mom grew up, having visited with you, um, just sort of like how those things are, you know, they're sort of their own special kind of storytelling. Agree. Agree. I mean, and I think there's something so metaphorical about it right where it's like you know this this weed which is it's sort of it's it's resilient right like it's like it grows everywhere and and it's not it's not a high maintenance plant um and yet it is edible and yet it is delicious and yet it is complex and i think there's something i don't know like that that simplicity and that availability and that resiliency i think tells a story about you know your, your family. Yeah. I mean, resiliency is absolutely, you know, the word that stands out, out for me too. You know, we were joking about how many times I had to rinse the, the dandelion leaves, but <laughs> as I was rinsing them, I, I really like, you know, what came to mind were just like images of all of my aunts and, you know, these women that work the fields and were so industrious and, you know, took care of land and their kids and I just saw all of, all of their faces as I was cleaning these. And, you know, like their strength comes through even now. I want to go back to what Angela was saying 
about how dandelions helped people survive a war in Greece. I wondered, how does war affect food? What's the social history of hunger? A 2018 report by the UN's World Food Program pointed out that there's an unequivocal link between conflict and hunger. In 2016, of people suffering from chronic malnutrition, 60% of them lived in areas affected by armed conflict. In fact, damage to local food systems can have a bigger impact on the people who live there than guns, bombs, or rifles. In war, farms can be destroyed. That means the land and the animals on it are taken out of the food system. Farmers can be forced to abandon their land, which means no one is growing whatever they were before. This means there's less supply. Less supply means higher costs. Higher costs mean more people can't afford to buy food for their families. In war, markets and grocery stores that stock food can be accidentally or intentionally destroyed. Though it's considered a war crime now, military forces can block outside food aid, literally preventing people from getting food. Pregnant women who are exposed to more conflict often have babies with low birth weight. It's harder to survive infancy if you're a low birth weight baby, and there can be long-term health and developmental impacts. Could it be that some of these war babies remember being hungry? Resiliency is more than our will to survive. It's our ability to create and grow. We've talked a lot about resiliency this season. It's exemplified in Deshaun's velvety yet grainy Reese's peanut butter cups, in the potato chips that Janet enjoys, and the finger licking that Jennifer practices in the face of a culture that vilifies it, in the cup of noodles that Francis has reclaimed, and in Joanne's spam. Food tells all these stories. It's a marker of place, space, and time, of relationships as well as loss, celebration and mourning, war and peace. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. 
Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Angela and I are two fat women united in our pursuit of yummy snacks. And in our culture, that's kind of a big deal. We met back in 2014 at a retreat for fat women called Abundia. It's a conference for and by fat women who want to live fully, joyfully, and abundantly. At Abundia, there were workshops on love and desirability, disability, and aging. But the real magic was just all of us hanging out with each other. It feels so good to laugh, relax, 
and eat with other fat women, away from the eyes of a culture that dismisses us as broken, pathetic, lonely, or sick. Angela and I were conference roommates and we became instant friends. Angela was new to fat positivity, but you never would have known it because she already seemed like a pro at being a proud, fat babe. We would stay up until two or three in the morning, talking about art and philosophy, travel and fashion, hopes and histories, and how much we hated dating. My friendships with other fat women like Angela are sacred to me. There's so much shared experience right there under the surface that we don't really have to say out loud. Like a silent footnote that reads, I know a lot of what you've been through and you are more beautiful to me because of it. When I meet a new fat friend, it's like when a single string of notes becomes a harmony. I love how our bellies touch when we hug. I love how our laugh is often rounder and lower. And I love eating with fat friends. One of our top food experiences, this one is somewhat, you know, some might say humble, but uh, but so, so important to our friendship. And it is Grocery Outlet, um, a.k.a. Gross Out, affectionately known as. Um, <laughs> but so for those who don't know Angela, like if an alien visited the earth and you had to describe Grocery Outlet, what would you tell our alien friend? Oh, it's just a treasure hunt. So it's a grocery store that, um, for whatever reason, has pulled in items. They, they could be considered gourmet. They could be considered artisan. They could be considered special. And they're usually really expensive at a regular grocery store, like a Whole Foods. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, we would covet, but can sometimes be out of reach, you know, economically. Yeah, I literally called the Ross for food. Any consistent Ross shopper knows you, you know, you go there for some of the staples, but you really are holding out for that thing that got weirdly rejected or returned. And it was from Nordstrom's and you're like, how did it get here? It's normally $74, but here it's six. And it's like that feeling is what you're holding out for a grocery outlet. Right, right. And I feel like grocery outlet ties into our identity so deeply. Um, We're both children of immigrants. We are both women who have epigenetically inherited the ecstasy of a bargain from our mothers. Um, We are both people who enjoy the finer things in life and believe that perhaps maybe they are made better by getting them on sale. And I think also like, I think it also connects to our identity as fat women. Um, And so I'm like, I want you to unpack this. Where do we start? Everything that you said resonates with me 100%. Um, You know, quality is something that that will never be sacrificed. Um, But money is is something that was never um, in abundance, right? So it's like, well, how do you get the best thing for the least amount of resources? And I think there's something beautiful about you know, knowing that you deserve the best thing. And as we see how like, you know, in, in, in modern culture, like all the beautiful things tend to be reserved for people with the most resources. And I just think that is, is just unjust, you know, like everyone deserves something delicious. 
Um, and I think as an immigrant kid, that's just like a lesson that you learn kind of intrinsically. In diet culture, women are taught to bond over diets, hating our bodies, and calorie counting. Creating friendships that celebrate food feels like repairing the years and years of being told I wasn't allowed to enjoy eating because of my body size. Eating with Angela is as therapeutic to me as an actual mental health appointment because we are doing the repair work. Like, there's a word for this that I love. It's called praxis. It's when an idea, like food positivity or fat positivity, meets the real world and becomes an embodied action. Eating with Angela is that. When the rubber meets the road, when an idea moves from our minds into our bodies and the ripple effect begins. When we fill our tummies, we aren't just doing it for us. We're doing it for our moms and grandmas. We're doing it for other fat people. We're doing it so that all of us can feel a little more free. There are two really important hot dog stories in our life, Virgie. Mm, mm, I'm ready. So our mo- a more <laughs> recent one is with um, San Francisco's Sticks Cafe, which is their version of a Korean hot dog, which is... Uh, it's this really savory hot dog with a big hunk of mozzarella cheese dipped into this mochi batter, which is like a rice flour. So it becomes very gelatinous. And then it's like breaded with panko and deep fried. And you eat it with um, wasabi mayonnaise or spicy mayonnaise. And it's just like the most playful, indulgent, decadent, fun, delicious thing on a stick that you might ever eat. If it wasn't, um, for the bacon wrapped hot dog of Santee Alley, LA. Oh, which I was like wondering if you were going to remember that. I was wondering <laughs> in my memory, it is all caps, insane, fully loaded hot dog. Yes. Um, so we ended up at the knockoff sunglasses Mecca of the world, Santee Alley. It was essentially like it's on the street. They're cooking it. The fragrance of the hot dogs they're wrapped in bacon and there's un- grilled onions. I mean, the, the aroma is so distinct and so intoxicating and it literally seduced us in and we were just like, yep, fully loaded. Every- I don't even know like, what was on there. Like it was like mayonnaise, nacho cheese, onions. I don't even know. Bacon, I was like, yeah, everything, anything you could possibly want on a bacon dog. I mean, it was available. Yes. And then we just sat there and we wore those um, amazing sunglasses that look like lips that are open. And and we ate our Santee Alley dogs. Yeah. And Magic. I think oh, we haven't ever talked about this, but like eating while fat in public <laughs> is not easy to do. Uh, and you really have to lean into your enjoyment of it to really kind of like, you know, not give a shit what people are doing or saying and 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 you know, around you. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to lean into the idea that, I mean, first of all, when you're fat, you're, you know, according to the culture, you're already always theater for people. And right. then when you're eating while fat, 
it's like you've really just got to like there's no point in not leaning in. I mean, it's going to be theatrical whether you want it to be or not. So it's like it doesn't make any sense to just not go you know, like lean all the way into the experience because like people are already having the thoughts like to then not moan and scream and laugh with joy. Um, it just makes no sense. It's just like, you're just, it's just self-sacrificial for no purpose. You know what I mean? Agree. Agree. Okay. When you're fat, eating in public is kind of a revolutionary act. We're breaking all the fat lady rules. Those rules say, Don't eat, just don't. But for sure, don't eat in public. And certainly don't eat in public with other fat people. And triple dog, all caps, definitely don't hang out with other fat people in public and eat anything that isn't steamed vegetables and cardinal sin. Never be caught enjoying food when you're fat. The rules are often silent. Stuff we learned as kids or on TV, but sometimes they really are 100% clear. Like when someone yells weight loss advice out of a moving vehicle when you're walking home. Yes, true story. I don't get to consent to this experience. It happens whether I want it to or not. I love trolling these stupid rules by playing into the stereotype extra hard. Marginalized people do stuff like this all the time. We take back a little bit of power, a little bit of dignity by saying, I see your rules and I raise you an act of absurdity. I will become the most ridiculous version of your expectation and expose you and your bigotry through that act. I take back the power. And Angela is often my collaborator in this project because she has also been on the receiving end of fat phobia. I mean, like I remember, um, and this, this could be triggering, but I remember when I was in high school and there were all these diets going around, like the cabbage soup diet and the like turkey and egg or turkey and tomato diet and this and that. And like, I mean, people were cruel. People would like mail these things to our house anonymously. I mean, like fat phobia is legit people. Right. Um, And so there was this cabbage soup diet, which essentially was like you just like it's like cabbage and some vegetables and you just eat that all all the time. And I'm like, this is like rationing from like a war torn country. Right. This is what people eat when they don't have anything else. Like it didn't make any sense to me that like this was what I needed to do, which doesn't mean that like I wasn't still shaming myself and feeling bad about myself and like thinking about how I could miraculously, you know, be different. But the restriction never made sense to me. The shame was always there, but the food piece, it never clicked. I guess like I've never been the kind of person that can like just not eat. Like I just have to, the, like food was so essential to my, to like to who I was that I couldn't just not eat. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get it. And I mean, I think that that's really, that's really powerful. Um, how were you in diet culture and yet having this sort of like very clear boundary around I'm not restricting things that I love? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's like, 
because it was like such an innate like joy that I got that I didn't experience in a lot of other places. I love that. I mean, I'm thinking back on what you said about the cabbage diet and how it it is it reminded you of like rations um and and food during wartime. And I, I mean, as someone who has pretty consistently used the metaphor of war and and food diet culture as a the war against women, um it makes complete sense. I'm like, of course it's war food. It, it, there's a lot of reasons why I do not limit my intake of food. And a lot of them are po- like they're political, they're personal, they're human. Um, and, and you know, I think there's sort of a bigger, you know, maybe feminist, maybe spiritual refusal to play along, you know? Right. And, and we don't, we can't change it all overnight, right? So you have to find your way in. You have to find the way that makes sense to you. You have to find the way that makes you feel like you matter. Um, worthiness is something that I, you know, talk about all, all the time with people. Like our sense of worthiness is just like a really um, critical point of entry and and learn. You know, this is like it took me thirty plus years of living in a world that made me think that there was something wrong with me. And it's going to take a long time to unravel that. But, you know, there's something bigger at stake. Like your true liberation is what is at stake. Mm, I love it. What was that transition into fat activism, into fat liberation? What was that like? Yeah, well, one, it took a long time. Um, I remember the moment where I identified my own internalized fat phobia, my own internal fat shame, like where I named it as such and something that I could no longer live with, right? Like that was the first shift. I knew I wasn't putting up with the bullshit anymore. And I was celebrating being in community with all of these like wonderful fat women. Like, you know, when you sit in a room and you see the multiplicity and you feel the energy and you feel the power and you feel like the, the strength of all these people who until that moment, like had, like I, you know, it's so rare to be in a a room like that and, and see yourself, you know, mirrored in all these other people and you don't feel alone and you don't feel like there's something wrong with you. You actually feel like there's something absolutely right with you. And that's when, you know, the the healing accelerates. There's something absolutely right with all of us. My friendship with Angela is magic. I think of all the times we've driven down the highway on the way to our next food venture, the windows down, Stevie Nicks blasting, and our tummies grumbling. Friendships built on celebrating our bodies our joy, and our appetites defy diet culture. You know, food is so many things. Food is pleasure. Food is sustenance. Food is experience. Food can be your friend if you need it to be in that moment, and that is absolutely okay. And the fact that people are trying to take that away from us is... It's just, it destroys the spirit. And so my recipe is to find things that you like to eat and don't be so hard on yourself ever. Mm, I love it. Angela, thank you again for being an amazing rebel eater. Thank you. (laughs) It was so much fun. 
Thank you, Angela, for giving us the permission slip we all need. (sighs) Rebel Eaters, this is the final episode of the season. I'm sad to see you go. But before you do, let's get in the kitchen for a second and imagine whipping up a truly unique Rebel Eaters Club dish. Start with a cup of Deshaun's Fat Love. Add a heaping tablespoon of Janet's passion for exposing shitty science. A pinch of Francis loving to watch his daughter eat. Some finely chopped resilience inspired by Joanne's spam. Half a cup of Jennifer's fill up your tummy and a dash of friendship. Mix together, bake it up, and voila, you've got a whole new world. We'd love to hear from you. What did you take away from season two? Hit us up at rebeleatersclub at gmail.com. Rebel Eaters Club is produced by Transmitter Media. Our lead producer is Jordan Bailey. Lacey Roberts is our managing producer. Sarah Nix edits the show, and our executive producer is Greta Cohn. And I'm your host, Virgie Tovar. Ben Shano is our mix engineer. Special kudos to James T. Green, Jessica Glazer, and Mitchell Johnson for the production assist, and Taka Yasuzawa, who wrote some of the music we use in the show. And a big thank you to Maggie Taylor and Elga Carl, who helped with show marketing, and Lucilla Perini, who designed our beautiful show art. And thank you for listening, for snacking with us, and for helping to make the world just a little bit yummier. Yeah. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover... The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm 
slash plus. <laughs>